0: So today, we're starting a new series. We just finished a series on the Gospel of Luke called The Upside-Down Kingdom, and now we're looking at Luke's sequel. It's the same author, written to the same audience, but it's now about the life and times of Jesus' apostles, after Jesus is ascended into heaven. And I've had a lot of classes on Acts in the past, primarily like Sunday school-type classes, and it's always been about trying to figure out what, like, the right way to do church is, what is the example of the church, and we try to take it, copy and paste, and that's what we try to do. And the reason why, before getting to Acts, I wanted to make sure I hit a gospel, primarily Luke, is because if you only preach the church at people, what you get is legalism. But if you preach Jesus, you get the church. So starting with Luke, also it makes sense chronologically, right? You have Luke and then you have the sequel. But as we go through Acts, we need to keep in our memory Luke. We need to keep in our memory the teachings and the things that Jesus did with his life. Because Jesus is our blueprint. Jesus is our example. So then what's happening in the book of Acts is it's picking up right where Luke leaves off. Jesus is alive. He ascends into heaven and the disciples are being faithful to what Jesus said by waiting in Jerusalem. And Jesus, in the book of John, he said something really profound. In John 16, verse 7, he says, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good, for your good, that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Advocate here is reference to the Holy Spirit. Some translations say it is better that I go, so that you may receive the Spirit. How is it better? How can it possibly be better to not have Jesus physically present, like right here next to us, better? That doesn't doesn't make sense, right? And I believe that's what the book of Acts is answering. It is answering what Jesus meant whenever he said that for those who believe in him, they will go on to do even greater things than what he himself had done. What? Greater things than what Jesus, Jesus, you know what you've done? (laughs) He's done amazing things. How can he possibly say that? It's all about Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is all about what the spirit-empowered people of God can do and how the early church took the good news of Jesus and started spreading it to the world. The book of Acts is really all about revival. It's not a quiet or passive kind of Christianity. It is aggressive. It is challenging. It is countercultural. But the Holy Spirit is what enabled this growth for the church. And if you reflect on the series that we've been going through up to this point, you're going to notice sort of a Trinitarian theme, right? The three series that we're going to be going into first. Who I am, looking at the character and nature of God, maybe spending a little bit more time with the Father, looking at who Yahweh reveals himself to be to Moses in Exodus. And then we're here in Luke, looking at Jesus how he lived his life, his teachings, the things that he did. And now we're looking at Acts, which is really all about the Holy Spirit. So I'm super pumped to get into this with you guys. Because we're going to be seeing, not only are we going to continue to dive deeper into the heart of God, we're going to be seeing how the heart of God is diving deeper into us. So this series is going to be called Church on Fire. For several reasons. One, it's a nod to Acts two where the tongues of fire were over the disciples' heads. Another, it's in reference to how the church spread like wildfire at that time. And also because of the danger and the persecution that the early church was facing. Acts is such a powerful book. And honestly, it's kind of like the Marvel book, <laughs> like the Marvel movie in ancient times, because there are so many wild things that happen in the book of Acts. Acts. Jesus floats off into heaven, speaking in tongues, flames above people's heads, healings, earthquakes, snake biting, shipwrecks, teleportation, death by worms, magic, sorcery, wizards, riots. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy, right? This is like the sci fi action thriller of the Bible. And I can't wait to dive into it because I really believe that there is so much that we can learn from this book that's going to help Fourth Avenue be a church on fire. So this morning, we're going to start in Acts 1. Start in Acts 1, verse 1, the beginning where Luke left off. It says in my former book, Theophilus, so this is the same audience, Theophilus. We're not going to spend time on who it is. No one knows. It's most likely a person that he's talking about. It literally means lover of God. It could mean a general, all people who love God. I don't know how important it is to know that. But anyway, uh, that's who he's writing to. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And that is right there. I think that's partially how the early church was so ready to give up their life for Jesus because they were so convinced that he was alive. They were so convinced that Jesus is now ruling and reigning over everything. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, which is a biblical number. He spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus instructs his followers to wait, to go to Jerusalem and wait. Have you ever wondered why Jerusalem? Why why did he send them specifically there? There's actually a lot of beautiful significance to it. So Jerusalem in Old Testament times is where the temple was, and in the middle part of the temple is the Holy of Holies, and that's thought to be the dwelling place of God. And also there's some end times sort of significance as well. In Revelation 21, it has this picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and it's, it's really beautiful. It says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, which there's a lot of significance to that. So if I ever do a series on Revelation, I'll really unpack this more. But I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is a new Jerusalem. This is a vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. Of God being with his people. And it involves Jerusalem. So it's so significant. That where these first apostles and disciples are waiting to receive The permanent dwelling place of God within themselves is in Jerusalem, in that same place. And it's also interesting, and you've probably noticed this if you've read the Gospels and Acts, it compares and contrasts John's baptism with the baptism of the Spirit. And for example, in Acts, we see this later, Apollos, he was baptized with John's baptism, which is a good thing, right? It was a baptism of repentance, symbolized cleanliness, but it wasn't until he was baptized with the holy spirit and taught by priscilla and aquila that he really was like empowered to do crazy amazing things for the kingdom of god and that kind of shows us that we don't have the holy spirit it doesn't really matter if we simply go through the act of getting baptized it's about being filled with the spirit that's where the power comes right and there are instances in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God influences or temporarily fills people for specific times and places, but the word baptized, it literally means to immerse. It means to be enveloped, like completely overtaken by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about baptism in a few weeks. I mean, I can't go through Acts and not talk about baptism in a Church of Christ setting, right? Um, but we will get there, and it's, it is so beautiful. It is such a beautiful act of worship. Um, but, but this moment, whenever Jesus is talking about the pouring out of the Spirit on all people, it makes his Jewish disciples, it makes their ears perk up a little bit. And you see why in verse 6. They ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So this is the same sort of thing that Cleopas was talking about in Luke 24. He was kind of sad that Jesus wasn't going to redeem Israel like he had hoped. But it's, it's fascinating because I think at least for sure in the mind of Peter, but probably in the mind of most of the disciples, there's an association with the pouring out of the Spirit of God on all people and in their minds, the restoration of Israel. And you see, it's in Peter's mind because in the next chapter, he quotes from Joel 2 specifically. In Joel 2, it says this, this is a, this is a vision of a future Israel. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So you can see there's this vision that they have of God restoring Israel to some extent. And there's some association with the pouring out of the spirit of God. Isaiah 32 also kind of hints at this. The filling of the Holy Spirit made made them think, oh, something great is coming. And then note Jesus' response here in verse 7. He says it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus expresses that the time of the restoration of all things whenever he comes back. That's not for us to know. So I'm just kind of scratch my head every time I see people try to predict when that time is going to come. Like we have no idea. <laughs> So I I feel like we could use our time and effort somewhere else. But beyond that, he writes that when the Spirit comes, he will be their strength. He will give them power. He will be the wind in their sails. But what Jesus is also doing is giving them a more global perspective. Because they're thinking kingdom to Israel. How are you going to restore that? Jesus says it's going to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is something that expands much bigger than what their brains were thinking about. And in verse 9, it says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did the ascension? Like, why didn't he just disappear or walk away? Why did he float like a balloon off into heaven? And I think there's a lot of significance to that, actually. Uh, And part of that has to do with understanding the ancient worldview. So the ancient conception of the world for Jews was that the earth was kind of like a snow globe, in a sense, that there was a foundation, and there were pillars of the earth, and then Sheol was underneath the earth, and there were three heavens. So, whenever you hear Paul in 2 Corinthians talk about how he had a vision of the third heaven, it's referring to the heaven of heavens at the top part, which is the spot where it's thought that that's where God is dwelling. That is the realm of God, basically. So, whenever Jesus is ascending and going through the sky and the firmament of, of water, of what people thought. And then up into the the Holy of Holies where God is dwelling. There's incredible significance to that. That is illustrating that God is reigning, or Jesus is reigning with God in heaven. And in the early disciples in verse 10, it says, "...they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky?" This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So this is really, really significant, too. Because I imagine, I'm sure Jesus probably talked about this with them to some degree about what was happening with this. But it's it's really important because they may have been scratching their head like, okay, Jesus is gone. Is he coming back? How is all this working? And then these angels, maybe the same ones that were at the tomb of Jesus are telling these men that he's going to come back the same way that you saw him, a.k.a. indicating that he is alive and he is reigning with God right now. And I think that's how they were able to sit and wait in Jerusalem with confidence is because they knew at one point in the future, Jesus is coming back and he's still alive and he is reigning right now. So then they go and do what Jesus asked. They go to Jerusalem, they sit and they wait. And can you imagine being the disciples here? for a second. You are told, well, first of all, before you get to that point, you experience walking with Jesus. You experience, you experience all the miracles, all the amazing things that he has done in his life. And then you witness the resurrection. And then you're told by Jesus that the Father is going to give you a gift of power, but you got to wait. you got to go wait for it. Could you imagine the anticipation for that? Like it's got to be like kids at Christmas, right? That that bubbling up excitement, like, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? But you have to sit and wait, sit and wait for it. And I don't know if you guys can sense it, but as they were sitting and waiting for a revival to come, I really feel like revival's coming here. I I believe that when I say here, I'm, I'm talking about with this church specifically. I believe it's already started. Whenever I say revival, I'm not just talking, I know we just had the Asbury revival, which was beautiful, and there's been little revivals like that popping up, and I'm not specifically talking about like a week-long worship session or something like that. I'm talking about the revival of this church being more and more like Jesus and through us helping revive Franklin to be a kingdom outpost for God. I, I really feel like that's coming. It's almost like a tangible thing that I can feel. And I've even heard from some parents that their kids are noticing it. Like they've been having conversation with their parents and saying like, man, it feels like the spirit of God's moving in here, which is awesome. Like that's so cool. There is resurrection life. I think that it's so evident in the people's lives here. And I am so grateful for that, that this is real to us, right? This is not just something that we're gathering together. gather just because it's a cultural thing to do in the South. We believe this, don't we? And I honestly can't wait to see what God has in store for Fourth Avenue. But as we're reminded by this text, if it's not empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's not going to do anything. We're not going to do anything. We need to join with the efforts of God if we want any level of transformation. We need to abide in the presence and the love of God. And a large part of this anticipation, it involves prayer, In Acts 1, I think in verse 14, I didn't write it down in my notes, which, failure there. Um, It talks about how they were united together in prayer during this time. I think it's so important that we are also soaking everything that we're doing in prayer. Because so many times in the book of Acts, right before something amazing happens, right before the Spirit of God moves and does something spectacular, people are praying together. And it also, not just does that demonstrate the power of prayer, it demonstrates the power of unity, right? Praying together, understanding that we are the same family through the blood of Jesus. There's something super powerful in that. So as we anticipate God's movement and work in and through this church and through Franklin and the rest of this world, I think we can take some pointers in how the early church was waiting in anticipation. The first thing is I think we need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. And I think that's partially how the early church was able to sit and wait in Jerusalem with confidence is because they were seeing constantly the fulfillment of promises of God. They were reminded of what God has been doing. And we are reminded of God's faithfulness as well. We're reminded of God's faithfulness whenever we read scripture or read stories of God delivering his people and never giving up on his people. We see his faithfulness. We also see his faithfulness in our own lives. I mean, how great is it that we get the ability to experience the deep levels of intimacy with God that we do? It is a gift that we get to know him, that we get to experience the love that spoke the universe into existence, the love that turns our messes into masterpieces. It is beautiful, and I'm reminded of God's faithfulness in my life tremendously. One, blessing me with an awesome church family like you guys. I feel so grateful to be here. I'm reminded of God's faithfulness with giving me Abby. I mean, she helps me be more like Jesus every day. I would not be who I am today without her. God blessed me with having two parents who love Jesus with their whole hearts, and that had a trickle-down effect with me. I am so grateful, and I see God's faithfulness. And some of you hearing that, you may have sort of an opposite reaction. You may be frustrated because you feel like God isn't being super faithful in your life right now, maybe in specifically some of those areas that I just mentioned. But I want you to know that I've been through a lot of hard, too. And even through my doubt, even through the times that I was so mad at God and yelling at the air, because I wasn't even sure if God was there, the times whenever I was in my deepest sins and my shameful moments, that God has been with me in all of those, that God has been faithful all along. And if I, (laughs) I would go through all that hard stuff again to be the person I am on the other side of it. It was worth it. It was worth it. And I'm reminded that God is faithful. So may we as a church remember God's faithfulness to us. Secondly, we need to anticipate in community. The disciples, they don't go and scatter to different areas to have a private Holy Spirit experience. They are waiting together. This is a communal thing. The Spirit of God moves very frequently in communal settings, or at least more evidently. And you ever wonder why that is? I think it's because God doesn't want to lead us into isolation. But God wants to lead us into community. Why? Because remember from the first series, our God is community. From the beginning, before time existed, there is perfect love and community between Father, Son, and Spirit. We are wired to be in community with one another. So if you're here today just for yourselves, just to check off a box, to get brownie points with God whenever you get to heaven, you're cheating yourself. Because it's not going to be as fulfilling or transformative for your life. If that's, what, if that's all church is to you, you're missing out. The institution of the universal church has never been about a drive-through experience where I come into church, I feel encouraged, live my life how I want to live it, come back next Sunday and do the same thing. That's not what church is about. Church is a rugged commitment to God with community. Arms linked with our brothers and sisters come what may. And you are there for each other in each other's lives. You know each other. That's what church is about. And I think many of us, we've had such a strong response against the impression that if you are not a regular churchgoer, whether that's Sunday morning or the more holy Sunday nights or Wednesday night crowd, then you're going to go to hell sort of thing. We've had such a strong response against that that we've kind of walked away from it. But what if I told you to some extent, I think the people who say that are right. And I'm, I'm not meaning literal hell. But if you live your life without consistent, godly community, you are inviting hell into your life. And again, I'm not talking literal hell here. I'm talking, it's going to be harder on you. You are doing something that is not helping you live a flourishing life. We are wired for community, and I think if we don't have community, we are going towards isolation, which is exactly what Satan's trying to get you to do, is make you be alone, and we've been so disinterested in that way of thinking that we can pendulum swing and get out of the habit of regularly being in a Christ-like community with one another, But we got to remember that our church family, I'm not just talking Fourth Avenue, I'm talking global church family, is more of our true family than our family family. And I know that's a hard thing to hear, but that is, our church family is eternal. And the ideal, obviously, is both, right? Both earthly family and spiritual family together, right? But we are united by the same blood of Jesus, We are real family forever, so you better start liking each other now. (laughs) So as we anticipate, let's anticipate together, let's dream together, let's serve together, let's pray together because God moves powerfully whenever we are together. And finally, we need to stay ready so we don't have to get ready. There was one time early in our marriage that... uh, we were getting ready to go to a funeral. And you have to understand this about me. I hate caring about what I look like. I hate it. I hate ironing clothes. I hate, you know, making myself look presentable. Whatever. Don't like it. Secondly, I don't like feeling like I'm in a hurry. I don't like feeling like I'm in a rush. So for this funeral, I was dreading getting ready. So I was like, I'm just going to get ready early. So I don't even have to think about it. Six hours before I leave, I'm wearing an all black suit and I'm just you know, working at my desk, and then Abby walks around the corner, and she's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you wearing that right now? And I I turn in my swivel chair and say, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And I realized in that moment, I'm going to use that for a sermon one day. So (laughs) prophecy fulfilled. Um, But many people operate with the understanding that there's always more time. There's always going to be another day. So I'm going to take my faith seriously later. I'm going to get the help that I need later. I'm going to make amends in that relationship that I broke later. But that's not always true. In fact, I'd say it's mostly not true. To quote the great philosopher Tim McGraw, he says, Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. What if instead of believing that we always have more time, we treat our lives like our days are numbered? What if instead of believing that I'm going to get ready to be with Jesus or I'll get ready to be a better follower or disciple of Jesus later, that we stay ready and anticipating for that moment whenever it comes, that I'm ready to say yes to Jesus, whatever, whatever thing is coming my way, instead of being caught off guard and having to scramble and get ready, what if we stayed ready and expecting for God to move right now in our midst? Because sometimes I don't think we expect much from God. And you can hear it in our prayers It's like we are intentionally trying to throw God a bone. We're intentionally trying to get the lowest hanging fruit possible to prove to ourselves that prayer works. We don't pray for miraculous healing. We pray for the hands of the surgeons. And I'm not not saying that's bad. I think that's a good thing to pray for. Sometimes I think the most miraculous thing that we pray for is for God to bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies when we're staring at a plate of fried chicken and butter. Right? I, I... Sometimes I'm like that's the most miraculous thing we do in our prayers. But why don't we pray expecting that God is going to do something amazing? That that God is going to move, he's going to work, he's going to change hearts, change minds, change this community, change this world because we have a God that wants to. And he's doing it whether we have eyes to see it or not. My question is are our hearts open? Are our hearts ready to receive what God has for us, what the next thing is for us? And are we willing and ready to say, Lord, here I am, send me. Can we really say those words today? I mean, look yourself in the mirror today. Can you really say that? That whatever about my dreams, whatever about my ambitions in life, whatever about what I want, Lord, here I am, send me, use me for whatever purposes that you have in my life. Can we say that? Because if we can't, then we're not ready. Then we're not staying ready. If we can't say that, then we're expecting that we're going to get ready later. So church, this morning, may we stay ready for God to bring revival through the Holy Spirit in this group of people and in this city and in this world. Spirit, we thank you. That you are dwelling in us, that you are in our midst, that you're in this room. And we pray that you give us the strength, you give us the courage to get ready now, to stay ready for what you have planned for us, to be listening to your promptings, listening to your voice, and telling us where to go and when to go. Give us your eyes. Give us your heart for the world Spirit, we pray that you just convict us today. You transform our hearts. You help us to stay ready and say the words, Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, I pray that in this church you ignite a fire. I pray that through the people in this room, so many people in this community are going to come to know the loving truth of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you turn all of us into radical disciples for you. Help us. Help us to be like you. And continue to sanctify us and make us more and more into the beautiful image and likeness of our Lord Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.